This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com. KJ about tzedakah. So someone came over and I just heard this recently from someone else. This is someone from the Upper West Side. He's on the co-op board of this building. One of these wealthiest buildings in the Upper West Side. I think it had over 150 apartments. I mean, homes. 70% Jewish. But being on the co-op board, he has access to everyone's Tax return. Tax return. He said he's shocked. He's the only Jew in the building who gives tzedakah. The Torah says you have to give 10%. Nobody gives. They give a few old gatkas, <laughs> a few pennies here, a few pennies there. Everyone less than 1%. I mean, they're talking about filthy rich. No one gives tzedakah. He is a baltruva, so he, he takes Judaism very seriously. And, uh, you know, the, the talk, like, really resonated with him. And he said, he's just in shock. Not a single one. All these liberals talk about, uh, but they don't give. <laughs> they want to give someone else's money, tax it to them. But no one gives. And then I just heard it from someone here in Park Avenue. Also, very, one of the wealthiest buildings in Park Avenue. And to get in, you know, they, they have letters of recommendation, how, how, how generous they are, how giving they are. But he looks at the tax return. Everyone gives less than 1%. Nobody gives. They don't know what it means to give to duck. It's, it's just, not part of a, just not part of the life. And you're talking about Jews who our grandmothers used to nail the pushkin to the wall. It wasn't just they gave. Before they sat down to breakfast, lunch, or supper, they would put a penny, a nickel, a dime, a quarter, whatever it was. I'm hungry. There's someone else who's more hungry than I am. So I'm, immediately, before I take care of myself... It, you know, it, it was like etched into their soul. It became part of their, their furn- inner, inner furnishing. It became part of their inner life. It wasn't just uh, something you do at the end of the tax year to get a tax write over it. it. It was like a real foundation in their life, a pillar in their life. And it seems to have disappeared. So it's only when you have the understanding, the godly understanding of tzedakah that you really appreciate, you really understand what it means to give, to give tzedakah. 10% that goes without question, without saying. You know, when the immigrants started coming after the war from Europe, you know, the survivors, and so the first time you had like religious Jews coming to America and, you know, in larger numbers and and the IRS was totally thrown off because these were lower middle income families who were reporting on their tax returns tzedakah that was unheard of in America the IRS was certain that they're all a bunch of cheaters if they're giving that amount of tzedakah their real income must be five times as much they're just not reporting it 
because nobody in America has that income to give that much tzedakah. If you're a millionaire, if you're a philanthropist, then you give, but but person who's basically working hard to make ends meet. But in Jews, it's, it took them a while. They had to hire Jewish accountants to get into the mindset of the Jewish mindset, how tzedakah is so rooted. You know, Hashem says, Avraham, I love Avraham. Why? It says in the Torah. Why do I love Avraham? Because he will educate his children to give tzedakah and mishpat. Mishpat means to judge yourself. Tzedakah is righteousness, to judge yourself what I need and to give the rest to tzedakah. As we discussed last time at great length. Actually, right now it's online. You can listen to it, uh, lessonsintanya.com. Uh, the whole discussion on tzedakah, the revolutionary approach of Hasidus of the Alter Rebbe to tzedakah. But what you're saying is that um, it's built in that some people are going to be fortunate and some are not. And is this God's design? God is going to choose who's going to be fortunate and who's not going to be fortunate? Yes, absolutely. We don't earn a penny more than it was destined in heaven. There are people who work like dogs, there are people who lie, cheat, and steal, and it doesn't get them anywhere. There are people who just have a muzzle. They just, they just met the right person at the right time. And, uh, well, we're reading it in, in this coming week about Isaac. Right. The Torah seems to indicate that Isaac had became so successful. Yes. Even more so than... The... Abraham. He was the richest of all the patriarchs. He, and it was a difficult year, and it was a difficult land. The, the land was difficult, the year was a drought, so it was like a depression, a hunger, a depression, and yet he was successful. And if Hashem wants you to be successful, it doesn't matter if there's a recession, depression, there are people who made it even during the depression. Not just successful. Extremely. He was a billionaire. Extremely. Yeah. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all billionaires. Isaac, it says, was the richest of them all. I mean, we don't have, <laughs> we don't have anything of it. We haven't inherited any of it. But uh, they were people of tremendous influence and tremendous, uh, not just spiritually. Their spiritual wealth translated into physical wealth. For a Jew, there's no dichotomy between the spiritual and the physical. The wealthier you are internally, spiritually, it translates also into physical, material success. The Torah says, you follow the Torah, you'll be successful. Because there's no split between the material and the spiritual. The healthier, the more vibrant, the more robust we are spiritually, the more robust, the more vibrant we will be also materially, on all levels. So the patriarchs were like perfect. Spiritually, and that perfection manifested itself also materially. Really, the wives were gorgeous. <laughs> Most beautiful women that ever lived. Torah says about each and every one of them, Sarah, Rivka, and Rachel. Uh, they were billionaires, and they used that influence to communicate their message. They were examples, or role models. Because the truth is, the nature of the world is that we worship success. That's just the fact. If a person, a wealthy person, acts foolishly, everyone follows. Imagine if a wealthy person acts wisely. It's good enough for him. It's good enough for us. Now that's why the mikveh here underneath our feet, which some call the nicest mikvah in the world, by those who've traveled all over the world, made waves. 
all over the world. It was written up literally. Written, it was in Israeli TV, it was mentioned in the Knesset, it was in, literally all over the world. It inspired many mikvahs all over the world, including in the New York Times, Time Magazine. And the reason is, wow, if mikvah is good enough for Park Avenue women, then <laughs> it's good enough for everyone. You know, that's just the nature of the world. So it, it's, it's a tool to be used. You know, money is just a tool. As long as you love people, and use money. And money is a wonderful blessing. The problem only becomes when you start loving money and using people. When you have everything upside down, everything is confused. The means becomes the end, and the end is the means. Money is a means. That's all it is. And that's why, for a Jew, every, every week, how do I know if money is truly a means to you and not an end? There's only one way to prove it. Someone could delude himself and say, I'm not addicted to something. What's the one way to prove if someone is addicted or not addicted? To prove to yourself. Can I walk away from it? If you can't walk away from it, you're deluding yourself, I'm not addicted. You are. You can't walk away. You can't change. You can't stop. How do I know that we're not addicted to money? That's not the end. All it is is a mean. Because every Shabbat, we walk away. For 24 hours, 26 hours, that whole world stops for me. I don't care if someone, the phone is ringing off the hook. I have a $10 million business deal on the line. I'm not available. It doesn't exist. Markets don't exist. Business doesn't I'm not even carrying. I don't even have my wallet. I don't carry in the streets. I don't have any identification. There's no labels on Shabbat. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a lawyer. No career. Shabbat. I just live. Shabbat, I just am. So every week you can walk away from it then the six days a week are blessed. And the six days a week where you're immersed, most of your adult life, you're immersed. Six days out of seven, you're immersed in, in, in your career and making money and being successful. Then it becomes a blessing. Shabbat blesses the whole week. The Zohar says that Shabbat blesses the whole week. Because if you can walk away from the money, then, Shabbat becomes, then the money becomes a blessing. But if you can't walk away, it just becomes an albatross. It does something funny to you changes you. It's the ability to disconnect and from that. And that's very difficult. It's very difficult. It's very difficult. It becomes, a, it's like a golden calf. It becomes like an idol. You know, the Alter Rebbe says when the, um, the rabbis of the Great Assembly, the beginning of the Second Temple, this is at the end of the era of prophecy. The last prophets, Chagi, Zechariah, Malachi, one of the 24 in the Tanakh, they were part of the rabbis of the great assembly, together with Mordechai, and, and that was the end of prophecy. Why was it the end of prophecy? Because the rabbis prayed to God to kill the evil inclination of idolatry. We can't even imagine the urge for idolatry. We can't relate to it. But in the olden days, just like we know how overpowering you know, the sexual urge is, that's how, and even more so, was the urge to worship idols, to worship. The urge to worship was a deep-seated human need to worship, to worship a god, their god, but to worship idols. And um, the rabbis prayed. 
because this was something that the Jewish people had great difficulty throughout. If you read the whole Tanakh, one generation they worship idols, next generation they didn't worship idols. It was like a seesaw, back and forth. Most of the kings actually did worship idols. It was, it was, it was a very unstable stable condition. So they prayed to Hashem to kill the Yetzirah, the, the evil inclination of idolatry. And they succeeded. But when they took away the urge for idolatry, God created the world in an equal balance. Every plus has a negative, every positive has a minus. They also took away prophecy. God took away prophecy. You can't have prophecy, which is this intense spirituality and revelation of godliness, intense experience, experiencing godliness, seeing godliness. That was the antidote to idolatry. But if you took away idolatry, God took away, and that was the emergence of the Greek culture, which is all intellectual, philosophical. Before that, the philosophy was much more mystical, which ironically is much closer to modern physics today. With modern physics, we're coming back to the pre-Socrates and pre-Aristotle and Plato. We're coming back to the original Greek, which was very mystical and very profound, which was rooted in, in the spiritual and the soul. But... Once they prayed and they got rid, they abolished the evil inclination of idolatry, so much that we can't even relate to it today. They also took away prophecy. And they saw the going was good. They said, you know what? Let's pray to kill the evil inclination for for, uh, immorality, for sexuality. (laughs) And they prayed. And they succeeded. The problem was, the next morning, they couldn't find any eggs in the market. <laughs> you know, this is the engine of life. This is what the, the mating and the... And if you remove that, the life will come to a standstill. So they, they, they for, for a day or so, they killed lust. They killed the evil inclination for lust. And uh, then they realize the world is going to come to a standstill. <laughs> so they prayed to God to re- restore. But one thing they succeeded. That there's no urge for, for uh, incest. Even in the most liberal, corrupt, decadent cultures, there's one area that everyone is horrified by. Incest. Even in today's society where everything goes and anything goes... But the line, everyone draws the line that incest, you know. No one's going to make it legal to, uh, to marry your mother or marry your sister. Because that's, so that's one thing that they, they accomplish. You, you, know, you don't even have an urge for it. It's like, it's, it's no urge, you know. So it says that they substituted. Nature abhors a vacuum. So if they killed the evil inclination for idolatry, they substituted it for the lust for money. The urge for money, which is like an idolatry. People worship it. They worship at the, at the idol of everything is money. They'll kill, they'll lie, they'll cheat, they'll steal, they'll, they'll sell their grandmother for money. There's nothing you won't do for money. Money becomes the end all. However, oh, and it justifies all the means. So the Alter Rebbe said, the author of the Tani says, I don't know if they did a wise thing. <laughs> if the substitute is not worse. Because at least when you're worshipping 
at least you're worshipping. You're trying to worship something that's greater than you. You believe that there's forces and powers that are greater than you. So yes, you, you're climbing the wrong ladder, but eventually you, you'll discover the true Hashem. You'll come to worship and bow down and kneel to the true God. But with money, you're worshipping yourself. You're worshipping, in a way, it's, it's a much greater abomination. There's no God. There's nothing greater than you. You're in awe of yourself, and you start worshipping yourself. And that's a bottomless pit. That's a black hole that you'll never creep out of because it's, 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 you just go deeper and deeper and, and, and you sink deeper and deeper. So, so money could be the ultimate evil, the ultimate, you know, capitalism run amok could be the ultimate evil. If that becomes an end and, and all that matters is money and there's absolutely no values and no morals, I mean, that the stock should go up a half a penny, you'll, you'll, you'll slice and you'll destroy hundreds of thousands of jobs. And, you know, you know people who are loyal to you for decades gave their lives to you for your success, and, and you couldn't care less. It's all about the next... I mean, there's absolutely no values. It's all money, and that's all that matters. There's no long-term thinking. There's no honest thinking. And it's, it's not even good. You actually hurt yourself. Because can you imagine if you had... If you have loyalty, imagine how much more productive they would be. Imagine how much, at the end of the day, you'll gain much more. But, but there actually was a Jewish billionaire in Massachusetts. I think when everyone was shipping off their jobs out of the country, he took a loss. He kept his factories open, didn't fire a single one. And eventually he did very well, but it took a very great courage, a lot of courage, and a lot of moral fiber for him to do that. But uh, when everyone is just worried about the next quarter and then the report, and you know, it's it, it's soulless. There's no morality. It's it's money, money for the sake of money, and nothing else matters. You become ruthless. You become like a, an animal. You become completely corrupt and decadent. So, you know, Judaism, money is a very powerful thing. It's a beautiful thing. We believe in private ownership. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were billionaires. But the proof is Shabbat. Could you walk away from it? You're not addicted to it. You don't worship it. It's a means. I love people and I use money. And then giving 10% to tzedakah, it's not even... That goes without saying. And giving it in the right way. Giving it with making the person feel like a million dollars. Giving it with the right intention. This is the Jewish ideal. This is a godly society, a wholesome society, a healthy society. There was a marvelous movie a couple of years ago by Woody Allen called Crimes and Misdemeanors. And it was interesting because it involved uh, committing a murder for the purpose of solely keeping somebody quiet for the sake of protecting your own reputation. And the end of the film, this guy, he was a wealthy doctor, he was having an affair with a woman and she threatened to tell his wife. So his brother was a gangster and his brother arranged to keep up. At the end, it's at a big Jewish affair and, the, and the, the doctor, very successful doctor, is talking to the character played by Woody Allen. He says, you know, it's interesting. After that happened, he says, you know, my practice got better. I became wealthier. My family was very happy. My relationship with my wife never got better. And so Woody Allen's last words in his mouth was, 
You mean there's no God? There was no punishment? Well, firstly, there's two points. One point is that what he's bringing out, that if there is no God, then you end up with moral relativism and you rationalize and justify the worst crimes. In other words, you can't have the two commandments, the, two, the, two, the Ten Commandments were side by side. Five on one tablet, five on the other tablet. Five between man and God, and five between man and man. The two go hand in hand. You can't say, I'll be a moral person. I don't need God. I don't need religion. I'm just a secular humanist. This is what happens. When God is out of the picture, you end up rationalizing, justifying, even murder. If there's God, there are absolutes. And absolutes don't steal, don't kill. But if you take God out of the picture, suddenly you become flexible and malleable, and it depends. And, and then when you're in a grind, the bottom line is you can end up being, becoming a murderer, a nice Jewish doctor. That's why up until 50 years ago, you never heard of a Jew being in jail. It was unheard of. Jews were from the most honest people in the world. All of a sudden, it's an epidemic. There isn't a Jew who doesn't know a Jew is in jail. This didn't happen by accident. Because as they stopped putting on tefillin, and as they stopped keeping Shabbat, and as they lost their relationship with Hashem, the shtetl, the shtetl was violence-free. You slept with the doors open. The shtetl was no violence. There was, there was hardly any crime. Not only the shtetl, in a broader sense, America, during the Depression. You think we know what poverty is? We don't know what poverty is. During the Depression, real poverty. People slept with the doors open. There was no inner city crimes. There was no crime people. Because America was moral. They had a prayer in the schools. They used to say grace after the meal. They used to say a prayer before they went to bed. They, they celebrated their, 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 their Christian holidays. They, they believed in God. Well, Lincoln walked around with his tattered Bible. So when you have a God, there's morality. All of a sudden, God became a dirty word in America with this twisted, distorted interpretation of separation of church and state, which is clearly not the intent of the Founding Fathers. And this is the result. All of a sudden, crime shot up thousands of percentage points, as if we discovered poverty in the 60s. We don't know what poverty means even. So, because we become unmoored and disconnected. Because you can't have between man and man and man and God go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. So that's a very brilliant point that I think he's making there. Uh, ironically, that Woody Allen is making that point. And the other point, which is a very genuine point, that that's what happens to a nice Jewish boy who would never in a million years dream that he'd become a murderer, essentially. But because his own life was at stake, and all of a sudden, there's no God, that's just what happens. Not only because lightning is going to strike. That, that's, that's, that, that's not how it works. If you have a relationship with God, even if lightning doesn't strike. And you could get away with it, but God says no, is no. With thunder and lightning, God says, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder. End of story. The other point is, it was actually the Gera Rebbe, one of the greatest Hasidic masters in Poland, a third of Poland, with three million Jews in Poland, like a million of the Polish Jewry were his Hasid. He was like a king, an empire. And uh, he uh, once got a ride with this one of the wealthiest Jews in town. And the Jew asked him, says, Rebbe, I don't understand. We say in the Torah, it says in the Shema, that if you will follow my commandments, 
you'll be successful. And if not, you will not be successful. So the Rebbe, look at me. I'm not religious. And look how successful I am. I'm wealthy, I'm influential, my life is beautiful. Everything I can ask for and want and need. Is the Torah not true? He was asking the Rebbe. So the Rebbe turned to him and says, I see from your question that at least once in your life you read the Shema. <laughs> so, so the reward for reading the Shema once in your life is even more than you have right now. So God is just giving you everything in this world, but, but uh, this is... Sometimes material success is not always a blessing. Sometimes, sometimes it can be the biggest curse. Because a person doesn't have a relationship with God you can be very wealthy, but what if you're not happy inside? You're miserable inside. I mean, what was that? Uh, I'll never forget that article in the New York Times. A Jewish. This was during the dot-com bubble. And this Jewish, he had an old, established uh, company. And he was worth like $800 million. And at that time, before the bubble burst, these nobodies, these schnooks, Overnight, the companies are worth $3 billion, you know. And the headline of the article is a full page. It says, where did I go wrong? <laughs> he was complaining that he ha- only had $800 million. He felt like a failure, a miserable failure. Of course, when the dot-com crashed, they ended up with nothing, and this company still kept on making his supplies, and, and he was doing okay. But, so you can be $800 million. God can bless you, and you feel miserable. Where did I go wrong? He feels like a failure. Can you imagine God is smiling at you. Inside, you're miserable. Because instead of being grateful and happy and thankful, I'm looking at the one next door. Well, I have a mansion that has 18 rooms and he has a mansion that has 20 rooms. So my life is miserable. So a person who's all about ego, there's nothing higher in his life. There's no higher purpose. There's no sense of mission. There's no sense of connection. This is, he creates his own misery. Yeah, but the poor person has the same problem. Is the poor person is even more miserable because he has nothing. Well, let me tell you a story. <laughs> there was once a king who became very depressed. The classical story, a king became very depressed. And they couldn't cure him. They called the biggest doctors, they couldn't cure him. Finally, they brought the biggest professor in the world. He examined the doctor, he says, Your Royal Highness, there's only one thing in the world that can cure you. You must find one individual who's happy. And wear his shirt, and this will cure you of your melancholy. So he immediately sends the soldiers to the far-flung corners of his kingdom. Find me one person. They're looking, they're searching. They can't find one person who's genuinely happy. Finally, at the far-flung corner, they meet the shepherd, and he's happy. He's singing, and he's dancing. He's just, he's, just, he's just happy. So they, they look at him and they turn to him and say, please, you must help us. You don't understand. The king, the king is, is, is depressed and there's no cure for him. You have to help us. We need a shirt. The, the professor told us if, if you wear the shirt of someone who's happy, you'll be able to get up. He says, I'm sorry, I can't help you. He says, what do you mean you can't help us? Please, you're our last hope. He says, I would gladly give you a shirt, but I don't own one. <laughs> And he was the happiest person in the kingdom. 
Nothing external makes you happy. There are people who internally are happy. And they did a study. People who win lottery tickets. There are people who are naturally grouchy, complaining, negative. Suddenly something unusual happens in their life. They win the lottery. So for a minute and a half, they're very excited. They're very happy. And then it wears off, and they go back to their natural self. People who are naturally happy and well-adjusted, and something out of left field, something negative happens, and it throws them off, and they become melancholy and depressed. Again, it lasts a very short while, and then they revert back to their natural self. There are people who have no reason in the world to complain about. They're always complaining. I'm sure we all know such people. They're always blaming and, and whatever they do they create negative energy it's your fault and, and he looked at me this way and you said this to me and you look your nose twisted this way to me and they drive everyone crazy and have nothing to complain about but they're just miserable and they make everyone around them miserable you have people who have what to complain about they had real difficulties in life and yet they're cheerful they give off positive energy they're wholesome you love to be around them so it's nothing external People think, oh, if I had money, I would be happy. Nothing external could make you internally happy, well-adjusted. Joy comes from the soul. It comes from within. All the money in the world can't buy love. It can buy a lust, but it can't buy a love. All the money in the world can't buy you joy, happiness. Oh, it can buy you fun. It's like chewing gum. It tastes good for a second and a half and then you spit it out. It doesn't last. And, you know, all the money in the world can't buy your honor. Oh, you can buy your fame, but it's empty and meaningless. Honor comes from within. Love comes from within. Joy, happiness comes from within. A sense of egolessness, a connection to Hashem. So when money becomes an end in itself, and you worship the money and, and, and that engages you totally until you, you don't have a free moment. You can't breathe. I don't have time for my family. I'm busy with money. I don't have time to develop my soul because I'm busy with money. Isn't that ironic? The one area in our life we have no control over because we're not going to earn one cent, one penny more than was decreed on Rosh Hashanah in heaven. The 48 hours of Rosh Hashanah. No matter how hard we try, it was already decreed the whole year. So the one area in our life we have no control over, people are, are consumed with it. I don't have time for anything else. I don't have time to come to learn a little Torah. I don't have time to pray. I don't have to, I'm too busy earning a living. The one area in your life you have zero control over. The one area in your life where we do have freedom of choice and we do have control over, which is our morality and our ethics and our spirituality and to develop our soul and to spend time to, to, to mature and to develop spiritually, to learn to love and, and to, to, to become a mensch and wholesome and to be a good, godly, wholesome Jew. That's the one area we don't spend an ounce of energy. And at the end of the day, no one hugs at the shakes. No one cares. When the person is in the hospital, no one talks about his BMW or, or how many homes he owns or how successful he was. Who cares? At the end of the day, all you have and all that matters to you is the love, the things that really matter, that we had no time for. So the Torah helps us keep our 
priorities straight. That's why the material world in the Kabbalah is referred to as a shell. A shell plays a very important role. It protects the fruit. But you have to remember that all material things are just a shell. It's a means to an end. But if you throw out the fruit and you munch in the shell, it gives you a stomachache. Instead, you throw out the shell and you munch the fruit. And the shell serves a purpose. It's a means to an end. Then it's healthy. Then the material things are healthy and wholesome. Otherwise, it just becomes baggage that weighs us down. And it robs us of our happiness. It robs us of our joy. You're never happy. You're never satisfied. That's why the Hebrew word for money is very fascinating. The Hebrew word for, everything is in the Hebrew language. The Hebrew word for money in, in the Talmud is mamon. It became a universal word. Mamon. Mamon. Mem, mem, vav, nun. What's fascinating is, the commentaries say, the Kleyokar says that mem is spelled, if you spell out the letter, mem, mem. Another mem, mem, mem. Vav, vav, vav. Nun, nun, nun. In other words, a person who has money always feels he only has half. He's, he's chasing after the, the missing half, the other half. So he's never happy. He's never satisfied. Whatever you have, it's never enough. And you're greedy and, and you're, you're jealous and you're eating yourself up inside and you feel miserable and you feel, instead of being grateful and thankful and thankful to Hashem. And that's the only thing we can control, our attitude. Our circumstances are out of control. Like you said, only God already decides we're going to be rich, we're not going to be rich. That's, that's Hashem's decision. But how we deal with our circumstances, how we react to our circumstances, our attitude, that's up to us. That's where we have freedom of choice. That's our arena of choice. And you can be joyful and positive, or you can be miserable. And it doesn't matter if you're rich. There are rich people who are miserable, and there are poor people who are very well-adjusted and joyful and lead meaningful lives. I'll just conclude, there was a uh, great Chabad Chassid. I remember him, Rabbi Peretz Machkin. He came from Russia, and he lived in Montreal, and he came to the Rebbe, and he had a private audience. He was so poor, this was in the early 60s, he was so poor that he was embarrassed to walk in with his kapata, with his kaftan, because it wasn't, you know, it was, it's all he owned was one kapata, and it wasn't in the best shape. You're going into the Rebbe, you're going into the king, you have to be dressed properly. So he borrowed from a fellow chassid. He said, could I borrow your brand new clean kaftan to go into the Rebbe? So someone went in that night to Yechidus, to had a private room to and asked the Rebbe, I don't understand. Chassid, like Peretz Machkin, such an impressive personality, sacrificed his life under the communists to keep Judaism alive. And he's so poor, he couldn't even afford to buy a new jacket before he went into the Rebbe. He had to borrow. How is it possible? So this was in the early 60s. So the Rebbe said, believe me, that Marilyn Monroe, <laughs> they, they were used. A star, hanging out with presidents, superstar, Filthy rich, fame, famous, glitz, glamour. She'll never be as joyful as this chassid. 
Tisra Peres is so filled of soul, of love, of energy, of joy, of purpose. Of, he's so alive, even though he doesn't even have a penny to his name. And his glamorous star, unfortunately, we know what happened. But it was interesting that the Rebbe used her as an example at that time. So money is a blessing. And may we all be blessed. It's also, it's also a big test. It's a much greater test than poverty. Because money has the ability to get to your head. We live in a community where too many people, once they become successful, it, it does something to you. You become like a different person and you become like, I can't talk to regular people. Somehow I'm like, uh, it just does very funny things to you. Very few people have that ability that even though God blessed them with extreme wealth, and yet it didn't get to their head. They remained down to earth. They remained, they, they didn't change. The money is just a tool. It, it didn't get to them. That's the challenge. May we all be challenged. May we all be blessed and all be challenged. And, and Hashem should have confidence that we will be able to uh, live up to the challenge. Because you could do wonderful things. I mean, this Chabadas, could you build this Chabadas without serious money and generosity? There's enough money in this neighborhood to build 20 such Chabadas. But you know the story with the... Uh, the rabbi gave a sermon, there was a, there was a, leak, a leak in the ceiling of the synagogue. He turned to the congregants and said, good news and bad news. Said, Let me start with the good news. There's enough money to fix the leak. The bad news is the money is in your pocket. <laughs> so, when you have so many people who don't know what it means to give tzedakah and don't know what it means to give 10% and don't know what it means, let alone 20% or more. It's just not part of their, it's not a reality in their lives. It's just, it's just hoarding and hoarding and hoarding and hoarding and hoarding and hoarding. And, and so you can be a businessman and a billionaire and have a heart and a soul. Doesn't mean you have to become soulless and heartless. And when you're not even giving, you're giving less than 1% to tzedakah, and then you're delusional that you send out letters of, a, of a recommendation letters to the co-op board or whatever, that you're generous, you're a generous person because you gave a few gatkas to charity, old gatkas, instead of throwing them out. This is delusional. <laughs> this, is not, this is not generous. This is not charity. This is not tzedakah. It, it, it's, it's arrogance. It's ego. It's entitlement. You know, and... So we're talking about individual, our individual life and individual responsibility, how we look at money and how we look at it as a blessing. And on the contrary, the more you're blessed, the closer you feel to Hashem, the more humble you become. God is shining, is smiling to me, He's drawing me near to Him, He's blessing me, He's opening up doors, He's, he's you know, the closer you get to Hashem, the more humble you feel, the more giving you become, the more generous you become. But that's the sign of a person. The Talmud says you want to tell what a person is really all about. There's three ways to tell. Bikiso, bikoso, or bikaso. See if they write a check in their money, in their anger, and when they drink. That's when the truth comes out.
person could pretend to be one thing, but if he's a cheapskate, a miser, that was the most despised characteristics among Jews. The most despicable character in Jews. All the jokes, Jewish jokes about misers and rabbis. <laughs> but misers, because the Jewish spirit is so generous by nature. But a miser tells you that this is a miserable human. Yeah, he could be pious and religious, but he's a miserable soul, miserable human being. He has no connection to Hashem. Because he can't have a connection to Hashem and be a miser and stingy and not generous. It's not possible. It's delusional. And a person drinks. And then you see a side of a person. Wow, where is this coming from? So a person's true colors come out. When a person loses his temper. All of a sudden a person loses his temper and you see this madman, this vildechaya, this animal coming out. Where, who are you? Where is this person? I never, I never met you before. But that's when a true, person's true colors come out. So money is very telling. It's very revealing. A person who's generous, a person who's kind, person who's giving. And it all comes from being godly. If you're godly. And that has been the classical tzedakah, approach to tzedakah throughout the ages. That's why we survived 3,800 years. But we've had our problems too. Definitely. Like the destruction of those temples. Absolutely. But tzedakah always saves us. Tzedakah tatil mimavit. Tzedakah saves us. Saved the day. And... Um, it's the best antidote, the best healing for all, all our illnesses, spiritual illnesses. Tzedakah is the best antidote, especially for our times, our generation. This is our mitzvah. This is what's unique to our generation. We are the wealthiest Jews that ever lived. Obviously, this is our mitzvah. God entrusted us with so much wealth. I mean, King Solomon could only dream of the luxuries that's available to each and every one of us. Even the simplest one amongst us. I mean... To live this lifestyle that the average person lives, if you had to live this 300 years ago, how many slaves and servants would you need? Probably 300 to be able to have every, to live this lifestyle that today we have in our fingertips, the average middle class person. So God gave us so much wealth and such opportunities and made life so much easier and everything is richer and more accessible. We never had such opportunities like we have today. So God entrusted us. He has confidence in us. This is the test. We are the wealthiest generation of Jews that ever lived. This is a test. God obviously has confidence in us that we will pass with flying colors. We just have to step up to the plate and, uh, and um, affirm that, uh, justify that confidence. So may Hashem bless each and every one of us around the table. That all the inner spiritual wealth translate into material wealth. And uh, we'll, we'll express that by being wealthy in our generosity, being wealthy in our tzedakah, being wealthy in our becoming givers and providers and connecting with Hashem. And, and uh, it's the ultimate connection with Hashem. Tzedakah is the most powerful, powerful connection. When the Jerusalem Talmud refers to mitzvah, a mitzvah, the mitzvah, without any adjectives, there are 630 mitzvahs. But when it says mitzvah without any accompanying adjectives, the Jerusalem Talmud is referring to one single mitzvah which is tzedakah. Tzedakah is like the ultimate mitzvah. It encompasses and epitomizes what all mitzvahs are all about. Money is the ultimate ego symbol, and instead of becoming a divisive force, you're creating unity, you're bringing goodness and generosity. This is the essence and theme of all the mitzvahs. 
to take the physical, the material world, the ego world, and to transform it into something godly. So tzedakah really captures the whole essence of what Judaism is all about, what our lives are all about, the whole mission and purpose of our lives. And especially in our generation, this is, this is, for us, this is the edge of the sword. This is the, this is the, we are the front line. From all Jewish generations, we are in the front line when it comes to giving tzedakah. We are the role models. So this is where we excel in, we should excel in, and we should shine and sparkle. One day, with Hashem's help, we'll be giving the Tanya class in our second Chabaraz, which is four times as large as this one. Is <laughs> it in the planning stage? All you need is a dollar and a dream. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the big issue is connecting with Hashem. Does that come first, and then you do charity because of that? You know, when the Talmud says, that we learn from Abraham that it's greater to receive guests than it is to receive the Shekhinah. Because God put, Abraham put God on hold. And then he told him, wait, I have to take care of these three nomads. He didn't know they were angels. They were like simple nomads. And he put God on hold. He had this most intense revelation, the first time in his life, after he circumcised, Vayera, the first time it says Hashem appeared to him, this intense prophecy. And he puts God in the home. So from this we learn it's more important to take care of guests than it is to receive God. It's counterintuitive. You're talking to the king of kings, you're talking to God. Imagine the president was talking to you. Someone rang the bell. I'm sorry, Mr. President, I got to run, I got to make a meal, I got to run to the store. Are you kidding me? I mean... So but we learn from Abraham that that's what God wants. It's more important to take care of the guests than it is to receive Hashem. And it's very strange. And Maimonides says, where do we learn this from? Because it says that God was talking to him. God appeared to Abraham. And he noticed the three guests. The question is, how did Abraham even notice the three guests? God is talking to you. You're absorbed. You have a private audience with God. God is revealing himself to you, appearing to you. The first time in your life, 99, 99 years old, you've been worshiping God for the last nine, 96 years. You've been growing, advancing, but you never had this intense revelation that you're experiencing now, the peak of prophecy. How do you even notice three Arabs down the block, three nomads? But they were three angels. He didn't know that. How did he even notice so from this we learn, Maimonides says, that it's greater to receive guests than it is to take care of God. Like they asked the Alter Rebbe, love God. It says in Torah you should love God. And it says you should love your fellow Jew. Which one comes first? Which one takes precedence? You know what the answer is? Alter Rebbe said, love your fellow Jew. Comes first. Because you love whom God loves. God loves every Jew. So if you love a fellow Jew, you're also loving God. Versus if you love God, you're not loving your fellow Jew. So the question is very, very interesting. Maimonides writes in his, in his Guide of the Perplexed that none of this actually physically happened. This was a vision that Abraham had. It was part of a prophetic vision. In this prophetic vision, three guests come to his door, knocking on his door, and he notices it. This is part of the appearance. This is how the verse begins. God appeared to Abraham. And what is that appearance? What is that vision? The story that follows. 
he's, God is speaking to him, and then he sees the three guys, he puts God on hold. He runs and takes care and brings tongue, offers them tongue, the choice is me, three tongues, he slaughters three animals, and the whole story. But none of it actually happened. There were angels, they weren't, it wasn't real, it was just a vision. So which begs the question, according to Maimonides' understanding of the Torah, how can he bring a proof from the fact that he saw the three, he noticed the three nomads, that's how we learn, that's how we derive that it's more important to take care of guests than it is to receive God. According to Maimonides, that was the vision. It wasn't he put God on hold in order to take care of them. That was the revelation, that was the vision that he saw three three guests and, and, and he ran after them. So, so how do you learn from that? The Talmud says, where do you learn it out from? Because in the story, in his vision, later on he says, God, please wait for me. So the fact that you're telling God, wait for me, even if it's only a vision, you can learn from that, that you're allowed to tell God, and that's what God wants, wait for me because I'm busy, I have to take care of guests first. So we learn that taking care of guests is more important than receiving God. But Maimonides innovates and he writes differently than the Talmud. He says, no, what's the source that it's more important to receive guests? Because it says that he noticed three guests. So how did he, if he's talking to God, how does he notice three, three nomads? But that only makes sense if you believe that it was actual story, that actually happened. As Nachmanides says, Nachmanides disagrees with Maimonides very vehemently, very sharply. He says, no, this actually happened. The angels came in the guise of men and it was a physical incident, a historical incident that actually happened in this physical world. So then it would make sense. He saw the guest, the nomads, and how is he noticing the nomads if he's talking to God? So from that alone you could learn it's more important to receive guests. But according to Maimonides' understanding, there was only a vision, and this is the vision, and this is the beginning of the vision, so there's no, there's no conflict. What do you mean he saw guests? He put, that is the vision. That is receiving God. So how do you learn from that that it's more important to receive guests than to have a vision and to experience God? But the truth is, if you understand deeper, and this answers your question, the Jewish approach is, when you give tzedakah, it's not a conflict. It's not, I'm receiving guests, and I'm putting God on hold. That is God. When you're taking care of someone, and you're giving tzedakah, who is giving tzedakah? It's not me giving tzedakah. I become transparent. I become a conduit for God. I realize that this is God is giving through me, my fingers, my hands, but it's really God working through me. It's not me. God is the provider. God is the giver. And I am just, I have the merit to be the tool, to be the conduit through which God is giving. So it's not that I'm putting God on hold. No, this is receiving God. When I'm helping another person, this is experiencing God. That's what the Alter Rebbe answered. Love your fellow Jew is greater than loving Hashem because you're loving who Hashem loves. Because that is loving Hashem. When you're helping another Jew, who, that's really, it's Hashem. You realize it's Hashem working through me. It's really Hashem. That's totally egoless. Only when you have that attitude and that approach. And that's why he says in the vision, yeah, that is the vision. He saw the three angels. That is the vision of God, helping another person. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.